Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Reweal as he continues his sermon series, Grace Upon Grace. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. What I'd like to do for the remainder of the summer here, we've got just a few weeks as we transition back to the beginning of school. Our Labor Day picnic is coming up in September. That's kind of our official fall kickoff for our ministries. Fall ministries for youth ministries are gonna be kicking off. Our women's ministries will be starting in the month of September. So we've got about four or five weeks to play with. And so I'm calling this unit, you guys can, can bring up the slide, Grace Upon Grace. For the next four or five weeks, I just wanna hit some, some one-time topical sermons on this, this deep and most important theme of grace in the Christian life. Grace and salvation, grace as we walk the Christian life, we make mistakes and ask God for forgiveness on a daily basis. Uh, this is such an important topic to me, to our church family, as we follow up on the book of Galatians. I hope you're a part of that. Uh, you saw a lot of themes of grace and freedom for the church and for believers, and I wanna build on that. Today, is a, it's a nugget. In 2 Samuel chapter nine, is just a, a buried story that could perhaps be, some have suggested that this is the best example of grace in all of the Old Testament. It is, uh, you're probably not familiar with this story. Maybe you are. Um, it's, it is just a, a testimony and a great story of God's grace, even going back to the Old Testament. And so I wanna encourage you for the next several weeks as people are coming and going, coming back from vacations and schools getting ready to start up, uh, these are just gonna be one-time time hitters as we go, but all a unit on grace. So let me pray as we, uh, as we start this morning. Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, your love and your grace to us. God, thank you for our church family. Um, I lift up many, many needs in our body, and I, I know I'm gonna miss several, but we pray for Jim and Melanie Specht and uh, the situation that they're experiencing now with, um, with their baby, and, and Lord, just be with Melanie in a very special way, encourage and comfort her. Lord, we lift up uh, Wendy Wenlin to you. Uh, she, she's fighting off some uh, sicknesses, illness. Lord, I pray that you'd give the doctors wisdom and, and just be with her and Bruce and like only you can, comfort her with your presence and your peace and your rest. Lord, we think about um, Bill and Robbie Thomas and just an awesome, awesome family here at, at TBC that have been a part of us for such a long time and uh, they're going through a, a season of, of transition. It's, it's difficult of, of suffering now, Lord, and I pray that you would just be ever present at their side. Um, thank you for the timing and the wisdom that you've given, given Bill to make some living arrangements there and, and we pray for Robbie as, as she comes out of this coma, just give her strength, um, give her uh, a clear mind and, and help her in, in the days that are to come. Lord, um, for, uh, for Roy and Martha Zachary, we just continue to lift them up. We're, we're grateful that Martha is, is with us and celebrating another birthday this morning. Uh, pray that it would be a special blessing for her um, so many others and uh, prayer requests that I've failed to mention. Lord, we give those to you, and we know that you are, um, you are the healer, you are the great physician. And none of these things are too difficult for you. You have healed our greatest ailment that we would ever face as we suffer the, the illness of sin. You have restored us, and you have given us a life eternal. 
for those of us who have placed our faith in you, and, and we know that these things are just a drop in the bucket. Um, for Ted and Mary Miller, we, we lift him up, and, and his, as he continues to recover, um, those suffering through COVID situations and um, kids that are sick, Lord, we just, we ask that you'd restore them and help them to be, be uh, good and healthy and well for the beginning of the school year. God, and um, just so thankful for our TBC family here. I pray that our time in the Word would be enriching to all of us, encourage us where we need encouragement, uh, convict us where we need conviction. My prayer this morning and, and for the next several weeks is that uh, TBC would continue to grow as we currently are, just a strong family that it rests and trusts and is centered upon the grace of God, especially as we see it in the gospel through Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. There's a story of a, a British conference where many of the best and the brightest in the world came together to study world religions. And the question that faced a, a group in a panel one afternoon was, what is the one thing that distinguishes Christianity from all of the other religions that are out there? And so this discussion went on for some time and, and several answers were given to that question. For some people, the answer was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Christianity is, is very unique in the fact that Jesus was 100% man, he was also 100% God, sent from the Father, divinely conceived through the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. Maybe the incarnation is that distinguishing element in Christianity from every other religion, but the panel came to the conclusion that, you know, that is true and there's some uniqueness to Christianity through that, however, there are other religions, there are other beliefs where a God will take on human form, or at least it's, it's thought that a God would take on human form. So the incarnation was pushed aside. Then the panel started talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe the resurrection of life from the dead is something that distinguishes Christianity, and, and at the end of the day, they said, you know what, there are other religions, there are other philosophies out there that promote life after death, and talk about eternal state, uh, something that's maybe similar to that, even though Christianity is, is certainly unique in the resurrection of Christ through the power of the Father and, and the Holy Spirit. And so eventually, as they were discussing, and, the, and this got really heated amongst this panel, uh, in walks one of the great apologist philosophers of the day, C.S. Lewis. And he, and he talks to the guys, he hears the conversation, and, and he says to them, what is all the ruckus about? What are you guys arguing so vehemently on this topic for? And he said that the answer is it's actually quite easy. The one thing that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion on the face of the earth and every other religion that has ever existed is the grace of God through Christ. No other system, no other religion promotes a grace that Christianity promotes. Amen. The grace of Christianity is, is distinguished from Buddhism. We are not on an eight-step path to enlightenment where it's up to you and your abilities to achieve a certain status. We are not following a, a five pillars of Islam where it comes down ultimately to you and to your ability to achieve some kind of peace with, with a God or with a spiritual being that's out there. We're not even following anything akin to karma that might suggest that what what you do to others will ultimately come back to you. Grace is totally distinct and it is totally different than all of those things. 
God's love free of charge with no strings attached seems to go against all human inclination. And yet that is the underlying theme and the differentiation of Christianity from, from every other religion that's out there. And not everybody believes that, that this grace idea in Christianity is, is totally distinct though. Most of the secular, modern uh, pundits that are out there, those who wanna challenge the atheists, the skeptics of, of Christianity will say that we really need to just study Christianity alongside of all of the other major religions. Uh, at the end of the day, if you put them all together, we're, we're all trying to get up to the same spot to reach God. Some of us just, just take a different path to get up there. And so there's, there's this thought that you know, Christianity really isn't that distinct. I was just listening to a podcast as we were coming home from, from Dallas this last weekend, and the host says something very typical of the skeptics and the atheists and the agnostics that you'll hear out there. He said this, all things being equal, if every other religion in the world believes that their God is the correct God, don't they all cancel each other out? Isn't this just simple mathematics when it ultimately comes down to it? And, and the host on the other side answering that question was Sam Harris, of course, famous new, new atheist. And he said it was a great point that was made by Bertrand Russell, a philosopher in England. And, and the thought was that even if we knew that one of our religions was perfectly true, Given that there are so many to offer, every religious believer should expect damnation purely by a matter of probability. What is the ultimate statistic that Christianity is right when you've got so many, a plethora of other options that are ultimately out there? But if Lewis was right, if the Bible was right, if Christianity and, and grace really is different than every other religion, then we can't go along with the rest of them. And we can't compartmentalize Christianity as one option among many for spiritual peace or existence. What we really need to do is start asking better questions. Uh, one of those questions is, is gonna be this. What is religion, ultimately? Uh, some people say that religion, just broadly defined, would be belief in God. Uh, a Zen Buddhist, doesn't believe in, in any God, actually, specifically. And so we would say Zen Buddhism is actually a religion, but here's something that would contradict that definition, that religion is belief in God. Other people might say that, that religion is belief in the supernatural. Yet this, uh, this whole idea of, that Hindu promotes is not necessarily that there's a supernatural and a natural, but that in the physical world, in the natural world, we need to tap into the spiritual that's already there. All it comes down to is our ability to, to perceive and to uh, experience the other realm while we have our time here on earth. Religion in and of itself, if you define religion, you're gonna come away with something like this. Religion is a set of unprovable faith assumptions about the meaning of life, who we are, and how is what is wrong with the world ultimately made right. Right, let me read that one more time. Religion is a set of unprovable faith assumptions about the meaning of life, who we are, and how what is wrong with the world ultimately made right. And if you don't think a person is religious, because this is one of the claims that, that they'll make, you ultimately have to think again. 
everybody has unprovable faith assumptions. Even if you believe that this world is all that there is, you live 70, 80 years, 90 years, and then you just go into a non-existence or oblivion. That in and of itself is an unprovable faith assumption. You are placing your faith in the fact that there is nothing after this physical world, rather than there being something there, some spiritual existence or, or some life after death. Do you have any unprovable faith assumptions about the meaning of life? Everybody does. Instinctively we have them. We not, might not label them, we might not call them that, but they're there. We all have them. Even if your life is lived just so that you can be happy, experience joy, uh, the most fulfillment that you can experience on your short time on life, you are living by an unprovable faith assumption that everything is ultimately for your enjoyment, your happiness, and your satis satisfaction. Can you prove that? Do you believe it? Is that how you live your life? In many respects, Christianity is a religion. And so yes, we do study it and compare it to other religions that are out there on the marketplace of beliefs. But in another respect, this whole grace factor comes in, and it tells us that maybe Christianity is a, an unreligion. Maybe it's something that is, is completely distinct and is completely different, and if it is, then you have to study it, challenge your faith assumptions, and understand what exactly you believe and why you believe it before you go on to live your life with all of these worldviews and assumptions that maybe are true and maybe they aren't. This morning, here's what I wanna do. I wanna look at 2 Samuel chapter nine and show you Christianity at its core saturated in grace. We're gonna look at a passage that is infused with the grace of God. And after you read this and, and listen to this story, you'll be blown away by the gracious nature of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, let's look down and, and look in your outline number one this morning. Why we all need grace. Grace, why do we need it? Now, as we pick up the story, uh, David, of course, King David, 2 Samuel, has become king. It, Samuel's are stories of two kings, Saul and David. First Samuel, largely about Saul. Second Samuel's largely about David. David has just survived a small civil war in Israel. Uh, Saul and Jonathan had died. There was followers of Saul and Jonathan's family. Remember the, the kingship, the royalty in Israel was first given to Saul and to his family. And so therefore it was destined to pass down through his family line. David comes along and he's from the family of Judah. Totally distinct. You've got a different dynasty. You've got a change of thrones, we might even say. He just survived a civil war. And by the time we get to chapter five, Here's what we see. David is a king as he starts his ministry, his, his rule in Israel, who can do no wrong. Everything that David seems to touch turns to gold. He's got the Midas touch. And his, his kingship, his rule, starts with some amazing passages. In chapter five, he's inaugurated as king from Hebron. Eventually, he'll go and, and defeat the Jebusites at Jerusalem. He'll take over Jerusalem and make that his stronghold, his capital city. All of that happens in chapter five. In chapter six, he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Rem remember David dancing wildly before the Ark as it comes back and, and his wife just being totally disgusted 
and ashamed that his, his, her husband would do something like that and, and they never go on to have any children because of it. David's heart was in a completely different place. Uh, he sets up garrisons in chapter seven. He's defeating the Philistines, the Moabites. He's doing all of these great things. Finally, we get to 2 Samuel chapter eight and what he does is just like the POTUS does every time we have a new term and a new president is he sits down and he sets up his cabinet. He sets up his officials, the council of, of men that was gonna give him wise counsel in the way that he should rule in his decisions. And you come to Second uh, Samuel eight fifteen. If you if you see that verse, you can just look back. Second Samuel eight fifteen is kind of this. It's a summary statement of David. It said, "So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all of his people. And he defeated all of his enemies on all all the sides that were around him, and he finally enters into this period of of peace, and calmness and quietness." And David is, is a new young king who's making all this progress for Israel. He's got a chance to slow down, to just sit down and, and ponder everything that has happened in his life. All the years that he's been running from Saul. David's 30 years old when he is coronated king in Israel. And all those years where he showed maturity beyond reason and beyond his age, he sits down and he remembers he remembers a friendship that he had with Jonathan. And that's the time that we come to 2 Samuel chapter nine. He's gonna ask a, a very influential question. All right, look down in your text, let's read the, the first four verses of 2 Samuel nine. David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, I am your servant. The king said, is there not yet someone of the house of Saul that I might show kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And you might make a special note of that response that he gives to King David. The king said to him, where is he? Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lo-Debar. Y'all remember, this was something I'll never forget just because of my, my lifetime. You remember 9-11, the day when the planes were flown into the, the Twin Towers there, World Trade Centers? I was a freshman at Mississippi State University as a sophomore, never forget it. I was walking into McCool Hall, which is where all the people who didn't wanna really study that hard did all their classes at Mississippi State. It's called, it's called business, that's what you do. So I was in the business hall, I walk in and basically just notice like all these TVs are turned on, the news gets out, everybody's becoming aware of it um, for the very first time. All classes are canceled, just go back to your dorm rooms, your apartments, your houses. Uh, we'll pick back up later on after we get through this, this ordeal. And I never forget watching the news that day you, they, they showed a, a shot over and over again of President George Bush, former President George Bush Jr. You remember what he was doing when the Secret Service guy whispered in his ear what had happened? He was in like a, a preschool or a kindergarten class, reading a book to a, couple, a bunch of little kids sitting on the floor. And I'll never forget thinking to myself like, this is interesting. 
You know, if there's, if there's anybody's day planner that I do not want on any level, it would be the President of the United States. This guy's gotta have high-level meetings over and over again. Like, you see these guys in office and they just age tremendously fast, and you know that they have crazy busy schedules, but here's a guy who takes time in his schedule to go read to a kindergarten, a preschool class as the President of the United States, and that, that always struck me as something really significant. You know, here's, here's a, the most powerful, the most significant, mo- one of the most influential men in the entire world at the time, taking time out of his day to remember those who are less significant, to remember the insignificant, and to actually spend time with them. This, just like uh, President Bush, King David didn't have to do what we're about to read about in 2 Samuel chapter nine. This is pure and sheer, unadulterated kindness from one of the most powerful men in Israel. He couldn't have been more successful. He couldn't have attained any more than he had attained up to that point. And yet, he asks this question when we come to 2 Samuel chapter nine. Is there anybody that I can show the kindness of God to that is still related to the family of Saul? And one of the reasons that David is asking this question is is because he was a man of his word. He made two promises. If you go back and you read 1 Samuel chapter uh, uh, 20, 1 Samuel chapter 24, you're gonna see that that David made two promises to two very important people. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, he made a promise to Jonathan. Jonathan helped preserve David's life when Saul was throwing spears at his head at the dinner table. He preserved him, he helped him to escape Saul, and he he fled out into the wilderness. And Jonathan knew from the time that he killed Goliath, basically, he knew that David was the rightful king of Israel. And so he made David make him a promise. He said, I'm next in line to the throne of Israel. I can see that the favor of God and the hand of God is upon you to be the next king. Promise me this, promise me you won't kill me. Promise me you won't kill my family who deserves to be next in line. And so David and Jonathan made a covenant together and that they would preserve this kindness, this this hesed, this covenant love between two brothers. And he did. The other promise that David gave as a man of his word was to Saul himself. 1 Samuel chapter 24 is a very interesting story. Saul is chasing David in all these caves and arid places out on and around the Dead Sea. It's just a, it's a wilderness of a place to be chasing somebody. David, finally, after he's being chased by Saul, he realizes that he and, and his troops are near a certain cave. David goes into that cave while Saul is there, and he's going to the bathroom. David cuts off the hem of his skirt, a little piece of it. He could have taken his life right there. The very next day, the sun comes out. Saul realizes that David was right there and he was able to kill him. Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, realizes David's the rightful king. And he makes him make a promise to him. He says, when you become king, promise me this, you won't kill my family. Promise me that you'll deal kindly with my family, the family of Saul. And so he made that promise to show kindness. This question from from David to, to Ziba, 
to his servants to find out if there's anybody else from the house of Saul is a question of, of sheer grace based on promises that David had made. When things finally slow down, he remembers the promise that he made to Jonathan, he remembers the promise that he made to Saul. Now who is the benefactor of these promises from David? Who is this that he is making the promise to? Notice how, how the man is introduced in verse three. It says, is there still yet anyone? Is there not someone? There is still a son of Jonathan, verse three, but, qualifier here, he is crippled in both feet. Now, now David's question was really simple here, right? He just says, is there anyone? He doesn't ask about condition. He doesn't ask about any, any status whatsoever. He just says, is there somebody that's still left? But the answer comes back and the answer is loaded and we can really get beneath the surface of the text when you think about it and just take all this in. The typical answer, is there anyone, is there still someone, would be one of two things. You could say yes or no, or you could say the person's name. Ziba, the servant, doesn't do either one of those. He says, in essence, he gives an affirmative, hey, there's still one son that's left from his family line, but he's crippled in both feet. The typical, typical answer would have been totally different than that. And right now in verse three, the, the boy that he's speaking of is not mentioned by name. All we know is, is he's paraplegic. Uh, this, is, this is clue number one, that this person that they're talking about is not significant in the context. Clue number two, that he's not important, is this guy has a major can handicap. Uh, he can't walk. In other words, David, um, yes, there is still somebody left of the house of Saul, but you don't really need to worry about that guy. Uh, this, this one is, is somebody that you can, just, you can just let this one slide by and it'll be okay. Nobody will even notice, nobody will even argue with you at all to say that you didn't pay attention, that you didn't at least consider if there was anybody left of the house of Saul. Yeah, there is another, but, but listen, you should really think twice about this. This guy has, has no significance, he's unimportant, and he's gonna color your, your royalty, your, your counsel, your court with a significant defacing handicap that's gonna be right in front of everybody. And it gets worse. Notice where the cripple is living. He's living in the, the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, in Lo Debar. Now, Lo in Hebrew is a, it's a negative prefix, just means no or not. Debar is either, it's either word or thing in Hebrew. So, so this man is living in a place of nothing, or you could say pasture land. We might, we might translate this, he's living in a, in a wasteland. He's living in a barren place. Uh, he's living in a place where there's, there's nothing, really. And actually, he's probably, he's probably hiding from you because he knows he's of the family of Saul and not the family of Judah. Literally, this lame man, this unnamed lame man, is living in a place called nothing. There could hardly, hardly, be a more hopeless, helpless, dark situation in response to this question, is there anyone of the house of Saul who is left? And yet, David wants to show him kindness. 
Not just niceties, not just be good to him. This word for kindness that you're gonna see throughout 2 Samuel chapter nine is, is the Hebrew word hesed. And hesed is the word that is mostly used to describe the covenant relationship between God and his people Israel. It's the word that you would use when you say Israel is always sinful, they're always making the bad choices, they are never responding correctly to God, and yet God is faithfully gracious to them. He is always merciful, he is always kind. He is always loving because his relationship to Israel doesn't depend on Israel. His relationship depends on his gracious character, his mercy, and his loving kindness. And that's what David wants to show. Swindoll is a a great point in his uh, character study on David. It's worth paying attention to. He writes this. This is the way grace is. Grace isn't picky. Grace doesn't look for things that are deserving. Grace operates apart from the response or the ability of the individual. Grace is one-sided. Grace is God giving himself to someone who does not deserve it, can never earn it, and will never be able to repay it. Let's take this just one step further. Why do we need grace? Apart from Christ, Humanity enters into this world. Why why do we so desperately need the grace of God? And the answer, of course, according to Scripture, is, is pretty simple. Apart from the gracious work of the Holy Spirit and Christ in any of our lives, all of us are crippled, living in a barren land of waste. None of us have anything of value to offer to the king. This is a This is a real physical picture of a person in Saul's family, but it is a real spiritual picture of all of our hearts and our conditions before a holy God. None of us deserve anything from God. Even the steps and the breath we take as unbelievers is a gracious gift from the Heavenly Father. I know, man, Troy and I talk about this all the time. I know what I've done in my life before Christ. I know how much of a sinner I have been. I know the sins that I still commit and struggle with better than anybody else. I know the reality of sin in this heart can go deep at times and rear its ugly head. And if God can save me, have no value, no worth whatsoever, then how, who am I to forbid the grace of God to come into somebody else's life, to compare myself to other people, to think that I'm special and, and they're not, make ungodly comparisons to people? This is, a, this is King David operating from a firm foundation of grace. He does not off, operate off quid pro quo. It is not this for that with God. It is not any arrangement of karma The grace of God says this, it is God's grace and God's grace alone that brings you to salvation, that helps you to trust Christ, it's the spirit moving in your heart that woos you to that point where you desperately need Christ. It is all of grace, it is all of God, and it is nothing of us. What is our part in salvation? Sinning. The grace of God comes as a gift to us in salvation. He enables us to respond to him. It is all through his grace free of charge. Now, how do we receive it? 
It's interesting how the story progresses. Look down at, at verse five. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir. This is now bringing, uh, bringing this crippled man. From the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, that's the first mention of his name, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. Now that's interesting that it would say son of Jonathan, son of Saul, rightful heir to the throne is what you should read there. Son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, he fell on his face and he paid homage and David said, Mephibosheth, he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear. Now finally in verse two, we learn the name of this guy, this boy, this crippled boy, and it's Mephibosheth. And we actually have other references to him in the Bible. They're very, very few and far between. But I want to show you the first one. Hold your place in 2 Samuel 9 and turn back to chapter 4 real quick. 2 Samuel chapter 4. Look down at verse 4. It says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet, he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. Now, what is that news? The news is they're dead. They died in battle. Saul died right next to his oldest son, Jonathan. They're both dead. The news reached them, came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, here's what happened. The terrible news came from the battlefield. Saul was dead. Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, was also dead. Saul was killed right next to his son. And David would later say, oh, how the mighty have fallen. This is not good for the nation of Israel. The second that happened, it was destined to be a game of thrones, if you know what I'm saying. The king is dead. The dynasty is in question because who the throne would naturally pass down to, now that that's been instituted in Israel, is also dead. At that time and at that culture, and, and Eastern dynasties know this really well, if you were going to revolt, coup d'etat, strike the state, hammer at the monarchy, this was the time to do it. Everything was up for grabs. Who's gonna come into the throne? Who's the next in line? If you beat that guy, even though you're not of his family, and you, mention, and you try to kill him and get rid of him, the throne is rightfully yours. And so it becomes, a game of power and a game of control. You, you see this at least twice in the Bible. Um, Abimelech in Judges chapter nine, before there was a, a king, a, a dynasty in Israel, Abimelech was the son of Gideon and he was from his mother's household and he caused division in the family. He raised up a revolt against the family of Gideon and he killed 70 of his own half-brothers in order to gain rulership in Israel. Jehu is another king that killed 70 of Ahab's sons to rightfully gain the throne of Israel. Of course, Ahab was a terrible king, so many people say, well, good riddance, 70 of his sons are gone. Jehu did it anyway, just to make sure that he was gonna have the throne. What normally happened when a dynasty ended and a new king took over was chaos and it was a Game of Thrones everywhere. Let me ask you a question. What is Mephibosheth thinking? Here he is in a no-pasture wasteland as a crippled boy. Maybe he's, maybe he's a little older. Uh, maybe he's a young man by this point in time. He gets sent a messenger from the king who demands his presence before the king. 
Immediately he is taken, no questions asked, doesn't have any option in it. He comes back before the king. Immediately he prostrates himself. What is he thinking to himself? He's from the old dynasty, not the new one. It's really clear, and it, and it comes through with David's comment. He says, do not fear. Why would he say that? He says, do not fear for your life. I'm not going to kill you because I made a promise. I made a promise to your father and your father's father that I would show kindness to your house forever. Here's how it continues. Verse 7. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. You shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Any dog owners out there? Got these little fur balls that become part of our families? We used to have a a dog at our house, a little chocolate lab, 60-pounder. Man, she was awesome. Uh, she was the perfect dog. Have any of you guys had the perfect dog? Couldn't have been any better. Uh, she was just, she was awesome. We, uh, we named her Rahab because she was a female dog, and it just seemed fitting <laughs> for that, right? She was, she was a great pup. Um, when, when Rahab was a puppy, Brandy and I decided that we were going to get a dog before we had kids, just to give us a taste of what it's like to potty train do things that you don't want to do because you've got somebody else that you're caring for, right? Made, made a whole lot of sense. We took that dog everywhere. Uh, we, we took her out to places to eat. If they didn't have a patio where the dog could go, we didn't go eat there. We took the dog to church. All the little kids would play with our little puppy dog in the back seat of our truck and take her for walks. They thought it was amazing. Uh, you can get all kinds of spiritual lessons out of obedience to dogs and, and doing things like that. Uh, she, was, she was the greatest dog on the planet. I could say here one time, and she was right back there. Whenever she traveled with us in the car at a truck, we never put her in the bed of the truck. I always put her in the front seat of the truck. She, she rode next to me. She was just a great, great puppy. And so, of course, just like happens with all dogs, nobody tells you when you buy them that eventually they're going to die, right? About 14, 15 years, we get out of our, our little pup dog, Rahab, and, and we've treated her so well as a dog, she lived as a, as a princess among all the dogs on the face of the earth, right? And it came time, she got the, uh, the, what do they call it, the great emergency with dogs where their stomach turns sideways. They can't digest food anymore and they just, basically they wander off. What was the Marley, Marley and me, you guys see that one? That's basically what happened to our dog. And so we found her, she went to the neighbor's house because she didn't want to die where we were, uh, just like all dogs do. And, picked her up, and after all that we did for that dog, you would think that I would take it and get it euthanized, kind of do this peaceful death kind of thing, but instead I just took her to Farmer Dean's and shot her back of the neck. Why did I do that? Because she's a dog. She's an animal, not a human being. People, people treat dogs certain ways. In the Old Testament, I probably would have done that differently if I would have thought twice as a dad for a while there. In the Old Testament, dogs are distinctly mentioned for a reason. The worst death that you could die in the Old Testament 
is to die being eaten by dogs. You know who's eaten by dogs at their death? A famous lady by the name of Jezebel, right? There's another uh, clause about dogs licking up the blood of another person because they were so shameful in their life, they didn't deserve any kind of other, other death than that. Then you would be eaten by dogs or your, your blood would be licked up by dogs. In the Bible, nothing can be worse than being devoured by dogs. Paul, in Philippians chapter three, he tells the false teachers, he calls them dogs for a reason. It's not a term of endearment. And even Jesus says, give not what is holy to the dogs. Don't cast your pearl before swines. Reformed theologians believe a a doctrine that's called total depravity. And total depravity teaches this. You're not as sinful as you could be as a human being. But if sin was blue, you would be blue all over. There's no part of your being, there's no part of your essence that is not some way infected by sin. If you put a drop of poison into a cup, that whole cup is not full of poison, but the poison will inflict every part of that potion or that drink that is in that cup. Sin is, is through and through every single part of us. Apart from Christ, we are all essentially and unchangeably bad with no spark of divine life. Mephibosheth says to David, why would you show kindness to a dead dog like me? And that's actually a, a familiar phrase to David. He's used it himself in his life and ministry. This comment is, is something to say of, of Mephibosheth's understanding of who he is. He understands that he is undeserving. He of all people should not be considered for kindness in the court of David. Before the king in the land, all he deserved was death. There is nothing but death that faced Mephibosheth. He thought that it was actually coming to him. What is it that you would regard a dead dog like me? Luther put it this way. If you see yourself as a little sinner, you will inevitably see Jesus as a little savior. Mephibosheth saw himself as a big sinner in many ways. He knew that he was undeserving. How do we receive the grace of God? We receive the grace of God as dead dogs. No spark of divine life. Unchangeably bad apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and God's work in our heart. Why do we need it? How do we receive grace? Finally, we get reminders of grace. Reminders of grace. Look down at verse nine, let's finish out this passage. The king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and all is to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him. You shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. 35 servants altogether would attend to Mephibosheth. Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And here's the reminder, now he was lame in both feet. 
What's happening in these verses as the story comes to an end in chapter nine is a complete and total restoration of the life of Mephibosheth. Everything that was wrong about him and potentially spelled disaster was completely restored and rebuilt because of the favor of the king. He had a way to cultivate the land. He had servants that would provide for him. Mephibosheth, being invited to the king's table. This is a a drastic and dramatic contrast to David who was forced out of Saul's table with throwing of spears at his head. Instead, David doesn't return insult for insult. He shows kindness instead to the son of Saul and to the grandson of Saul. While While Saul used his table to throw spears, David used his table to show grace. It's interesting in verse 12, that there's a mention of a son, Micah. What would this tell you about a dynasty? Micah threat to the kingdom of David, or is he okay? He's a threat to the kingdom. He is mentioned here and here only in all the Old Testament. Never again will Micah be mentioned. David preserves his life. He preserves that family line because he is trusting in the sovereignty and the goodness of God, and he is making good on his promise uh, to to Saul and to to Jonathan. This passage ends with a gracious reminder. Actually, in Hebrew, when you see that phrase, now he was lame in both feet, we call that a disjunctive clause. There's nothing progressing in the storyline, but it grabs your attention. It stands out. Nothing new is happening, however, here's what you need to know. Every time this guy came to the table, he either limped, dragged his feet, or somebody brought him because he was unable to walk. And it was a constant reminder of the grace of the king to Mephibosheth. The story of Mephibosheth ends here in the Old Testament, but this story continues daily in the life of every church and in the life of every Christian. And I just want to point out some similarities between Mephibosheth's story and all of our stories who have trusted Christ. Mephibosheth suffered a fall at the age of five. It crippled him for the rest of his life. All humanity suffered a fall in the Garden of Eden that has crippled us for the rest of our lives. Romans would put it this way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have life in us or by ourselves. Sin has crippled us from walking with God. It has crippled an otherwise created relationship that apart from sin would have been perfect and holy. Our greatest issue in life is not physical. Our greatest issue is a spiritual crippling of the heart because of sin. There is nothing that we can do on our own power to deserve the grace of God. Number two, Mephibosheth had nothing, he deserved nothing, and he could repay nothing. In this story, we find him hiding from the king, and the same is true of all of us apart from Christ. We have nothing, we deserve nothing, we repay nothing to God. In this story, we find Mephibosheth hiding from the king, and the same is true of all of us. Apart from Christ, we hide. We hide behind our guilt and shame because we know that if there is an all-holy, all-perfect God, that we do not line up with his character. 
And so we hide behind things. We hide behind our achievements, our family, our success. We hide behind our joys, the things that we're good at, our strengths. All of it designed to take us further and further away from our need for Christ. And in that hiding is where God will ultimately find us once we come to an end of ourselves. Grace tells us it is not man that finds God, it is God that finds man, and he found all of us who placed our faith in him. David showed grace and kindness to Mephibosheth out of a sheer love for Jonathan. Mephibosheth's acceptance at the table of the king was based completely on another person. Do you know anything that sounds remotely close to that in the Bible? All of our acceptance before God is through another person's work. It is through the kindness of Jesus Christ on the cross. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And when God the Father looks down upon those who have trusted Christ, he sees his son perfect and acceptable in his sight. That's why we can sit at the table of the Lord. That's why we can dine with the king. David was adopted. He adopted Mephibosheth into his own family. Spiritually, because of Jesus and what he has done, we are adopted into a new family, into a spiritual bloodline, a bloodline that is traced back to Calvary's cross and the blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We're about to take the Lord's Supper to point that out. Mephibosheth's disability was a constant reminder of grace that was received. Every day we live and breathe and take another step is a constant reminder of grace from God, of his care for us, of his concern for those who are insignificant apart from him. David restored Mephibosheth to a place of, from a place of barrenness to a place of honor. And he regularly ate at the table of the king. I'm gonna ask the deacons to go back and elders, if you guys are helping to serve the Lord's Supper, we're gonna close our services here by, by partaking of the Lord's Supper. And when Daniel was here not too long ago, uh, this spring, he talked about this passage in 2 Samuel chapter nine. He talked about Mephibosheth and how undeserving he was for the table of the king. This is a great story to think about as we approach the Lord's Supper. All of us have an invitation to dine with the king. All of us don't deserve it. All of us left to ourselves deserve nothing but death and the wrath of God. But through Christ, we have received the kindness of the Father. It is through his death on the cross as a mediator for our sins that we are able to not only have life and life eternal with God, but to sit at the table of the king regularly and partake of the king's supper. In the New Testament, in the church, we call it the Lord's Supper. We partake of elements as a constant reminder of the grace of God. A constant reminder that it was his body that was broken on our behalf and it was his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We don't come to the Lord's table by getting our life right. You don't come to the Lord's table by confessing all known sin that you have in your life and, and that makes you right for the table. You come to the table of the Lord because our lives are wrong. Apart from Christ, we have no business seated at the table of the King. But he has allowed us and invited us to come in 
based sheerly on the kindness and the grace of God. Every time we sit at the Lord's table, think about Mephibosheth. Who was there at the table of David? Absalom, certainly. He was David's general, the guy that basically killed Abner, Saul's general. Fierce Absalom. He'd cut your head off before you could swallow. You wouldn't even know it. Tamar's probably sat, sat there, David's daughter, beautiful Tamar. Solomon. Maybe he came in. Wise Solomon closes up his books for the day, comes out of study, walks down in all his royal garb to sit at the table of the king. Somewhere in the process of that nightly meal, one other guy would sit down at the table. What would have that looked like? What would have that sounded like? Were his feet dragging in the dirt as he came to the table? Did somebody carry him there? Did he have a assigned seat? You know it was Mephibosheth's spot, and so nobody, nobody sat there. Whatever it looked like, I can tell you this, it was probably uncomfortable, and it felt like it didn't belong at the table of the king. Neither do you and I. But he asked us to come anyway. Let's pray, and um, Brandon, I don't know if you guys are going to come up here. We can... As, uh, as the guys are playing, just remember to take two cups out of the serving platters that comes before you. The bottom cup is the bread, and the top cup is the juice. Just hang on to those before we partake together. Father in heaven, um, we thank you for, for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for grace. Thank you for your kindness to us that none of us deserve, none of us can earn. Pray that every day that we, uh, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper here at TBC, we'll be reminded of the matchless grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.